Father, for the afternoon. Thank you for these brothers and sisters. Thank you for your gifting. Thank you for uh, the fellowship that we enjoy, the spontaneous providential conversations that you're working in all of our lives this weekend. We're thankful for that. And uh, we pray that both the conversations and the content of what we talk about uh, will be edifying to our souls. In the midst of these things as well, we are so cognizant that tomorrow is worship. And so would you guide and direct our hearts towards that, even by the things we talk about today, that we are so enraptured with you that our worship is um, provoked and stimulated in a way that honors you. So God, our time together, especially now as we think about your nature and character, help us to speak rightfully and truthfully about that and in a worshipful way as well. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, A.W. Pink says, The God of this century no more resembles the sovereign of holy writ than does the dim flickering of a candle, the glory of the midday sun. The God who is talked about in the average pulpit, spoken of in the ordinary Sunday school, mentioned in much of the religious literature of the day and preached in most of the so-called Bible conferences, is a figment of human imagination, an invention of maudlin sentimentality. The heathen outside the pale of Christendom forms gods of wood and stone, while millions of heathen inside Christendom manufacture a god out of their carnal minds, end quote. <clears throat> that was A.W. Pink, probably, and I don't know the date of that particular book, probably in the 60s, so 60 years ago. And that was true then, and... I think if we look at the state of the church and the state of the world now, it's even more so today, isn't it? Uh, there, there is, <clears throat> um, there seems to be a rapid de-escalization of the nature and the character of God. And I'm really not as pessimistic as I sound the last couple of days, <laughs> um, but I think we do have to look uh, realistically at the way the world operates and even what's going on in the church. So, you know, one of the best things we can do um, is to get to know the nature and the character of God. Who is this God that we worship? I just even prayed to that end a moment ago. Um, why? Why? Uh, uh, here's, here's the question that we're considering in this hour. Uh, the attributes of God. Explain the following attributes of God, describing the practical implications of each for life and counseling. Wrath, mercy, holiness, omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, and do that in a page and a half. Um, so you're taking these infinite realities and trying to condense them, six of them, in a page and a half. I will say, just sidebar, I think I mentioned this yesterday. If you go a little bit over on this one, that's okay. Nine pages is not okay. Uh, but if you go, you know, two full pages, most of us are, are going to cut you some slack because we understand the difficulty of it. Um, wh- why is the study of God important? Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you want to know wisdom, both for yourself and for the care of others, you need to have a godly fear of the Lord. You need to have a godly understanding of the Lord. And the, and the way to grow in that fear is to grow in the knowledge of Him. And the way to know God is to study Him through His attributes. Uh, so if we want to live wisely, if we want to counsel wisely, if we want to disciple wisely, we need to know this God that we worship. Um, and knowing the truth of God is going to produce rest and trust in him. Listen to the psalmist, Psalm 46. Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has, who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. 
He breaks the bow in two, cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. So, cease striving. Know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Selah. Sit and think about that for a minute, is what that means. And so, as you contemplate the character of God, the nature of God, it's going to produce rest for your soul, and it will produce rest for your counselees as well. Studying the attributes of God allows us to know more about Him, and not just about Him, but to know Him, uh, to be in intimate fellowship with Him. Again, uh, A.W. Pink in his book, Attributes of God, by the way, and I think this is in your notes, but um, Attributes of God, I think, is his finest work. Um, That is my favorite book on the attributes of God. It is thorough. It is readable. It is biblical. I used to love Knowledge of the Holy by Tozer, which which is a very helpful book, but what I love about Pink is he is so relentlessly biblical. It's just saturated with Scripture, and you will read that... My mic is in my pocket where it's supposed to be, waiting for talking. There we go. (coughs) The noetic effect of sin, example number two. (laughs) Um, Actually, that's a brain function problem, not a mind issue. But anyway, that, that, you know, I I need to make the joke. So there we are. Yeah, I forgot where I was. Let's just move on. <laughs> how do we how do we study God's attributes? So as we think about the attributes, let's understand this. The attributes are in harmony with one another. That is, they complement one another. They work together with one another. They are not in opposition to each other. So God's infinite wrath is not in conflict with his infinite love. They are harmonious with one another. Um, And note this as well. All of his attributes are always fully functional to an infinite degree. So in order to be wrathful, he does not suspend his love. To be loving and gracious and good, he does not suspend his wrath his judgment, uh, his anger. So because of that, we say that God can be just and loving without the one being in conflict with another. This is what theologians call, and this is an attribute of God, it's called his simplicity. So that all of the action, or all of the attributes are always active, always functioning together. Tozer says this, the harmony of his being is the result of, Not of the perfect balance between the parts, but of the absence of parts. There are no parts to God. Between his attributes, no contradiction can exist. He need not suspend one to to exercise the other, for in him all his attributes are one. All of God does all that God does. He does not divide himself to perform a work, but works in the total unity of his being. Uh, We've already alluded to this, but we also recognize that all of God's attributes are infinite. They are complete. 
They are not maturing. They are not changing. They are not increasing, nor are they diminishing. They have always existed completely and always will exist completely. So because of that, he is a unique, singular God. And these that principle actually speaks to the unity of God, another of his attributes. It says Steve DeWitt in his book, Eyes Wide Open, God has no potential to be less perfect or more perfect. He has eternally existed with his every attribute existing in absolute completeness. He cannot be anything more than he is and will never be anything less than he always has been. Um, so as we think about the attributes of God, what, what is an attribute? And this is something you at least want to give passing reference to. Um, Tozer, again, knowledge of the holy, he says, an attribute of God is whatever God has in any way revealed as being true of himself. An attribute, then, is a part of God. It is how God is. And as far as the reasoning mind can go, we may say that it is what God is, though exactly what he is, he cannot tell us. So, in other words, God in his infinite nature and character can't fully reveal himself because he's infinite and we're finite. But as we think about the attributes, we are saying this is what he is as much as he can reveal to us and as much as we can comprehend with our minds. Maybe a little more simply, um, Walvoord writes, uh, a divine attribute is a property that is intrinsic in God by which God is distinguished or identified. So we would say this is what God is. So there are six attributes that you're going to need to deal with in this question. The first of those is the wrath of God. So let's give you a simple definition. The wrath of God is a subcategory of God's righteousness and justice. It is, the fancy word is, his retributive justice. So where he, his justice by which he takes retribution on those who are in opposition to him and rebellion against him. He punishes those who are not righteous and those who have not been declared righteous by him. Um, there are a lot of words in both Old and New Testament to denote the wrath of God, and most of them relate in some way to God's anger. But as you think about the anger of God, don't, don't equate it with my anger or your anger, man's anger. Man's anger is almost always rash, self-centered, prideful, and unrighteously hostile. Anybody identify with that? Is that sounding familiar to any, any of you? Um, in fact, I was, you know, during lunch, I was talking to a dear brother and he was asking me about a situation. I said, honestly, it has been a tremendous battle for me not to be unrighteously angry in that situation. It's just really hard. And um, and so we, we talked about that. That that's man. It's it's retribution. And that's exactly what I want in the situation that we were talking about. I want retribution. I want my pound of flesh. I'd, I'd take 10 or 20 pounds of flesh, actually. Um, that's, that's my inclination. That's not the Lord. Um, interestingly, um, Romans one, we find this verse 18. We talk about this last hour. The, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And the word that Paul uses there for wrath or anger 
is a word that denotes a slow, methodical, settled condition of mind. It's not reactionary. It's not retributive in the sense that we would think about it. It's not sudden. It's not explosive. It's not impetuous. It's not malicious. It's not irrational. It's reasoned. It's determined. And it is a long-lasting indignation. This is a wrong that needs being made right. And that's the way God functions. God's wrath, we might say, is His active retributive response to sin. It is a judicial penalty imposed in accordance with His personal righteous hostility to everything that is evil. So God looks at evil... And he is hostile to it, and righteously so, which is, which is where our struggle is, right? So I can be hostile against things that are evil. My problem is it gets manifested in an unrighteous way too often, but never so with the Lord. God's Packer says, I think that again, this is in his um, concise theology, God's wrath is his resolute action in punishing sin. And for the believer, isn't that a comfort? I can put my head on my pillow at night and say, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. It's okay, the Lord's got it. He is settled against it and he will make it right. Either he will punish Christ for that sin or he will punish that person for all of eternity in hell. And in both situations, righteousness will be vindicated and wrong will be put down. And that's that's a comfort for us as believers. A couple observations about these definitions. God's wrath is in accordance with his justice. His wrath is never wrong. It is never sinful. And God is angry only when a violation of his holiness has been committed. In fact, you see that in the rest of Romans chapter 1. All the different ways that man has attempted to fight against God, to resist God, to put God down, um, to be unrighteous. And God responds to that with his wrath. Only when man is opposed to him does he express his anger against them. Says uh, D. Edmund Hebert, God must be angry with sin because of the destructive character of sin. His love will not allow him to be tolerant toward the devastating effects of sin. So that's one of the ways that you see his love and his uh, wrath being worked in harmony with one another. Um, Second um, implication of these definitions, God's wrath is an expression of his holiness. God's anger is against sin. It is his holy revulsion, says uh, John Murray, it is his holy revulsion against that which is in uh, that which is the contradiction of his holiness. Um, so every act of sin is a rebellion against God and his commands, and every sin is reminiscent of sin of Satan's rebellion against him, and that must be put down. That must be responded to. So some key passages. Uh, you don't need to use nearly all of these, but here are just a few to kind of stimulate your thinking genesis chapter 3 verse 24 Uh, there we have god's wrath expressed in the culmination of god's curse on satan and adam and and on eve for their sin in the garden of eden so he cursed them 
as an expression of his anger over their sin of rebellion against him in the garden. Uh, Genesis 6, 5 to 7 culminates in God's judgment of the flood. So his anger is so great against the world that uh, and, and rampant sin that he condemns the whole world in this massive act of, of uh, judgment against them. Uh, Deuteronomy 32, 39 to 41 is a reminder to the Israelites as they prepare to enter the land that God will judge sin. So they've just spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness watching an entire generation literally die off. And it's not till the last person dies that they're allowed to enter uh, into the land. And Gen- uh, Deuteronomy 32, 39 to 41 is a reminder of that. The psalmists speak regularly about the wrath of God. Um, we find find that all over in the psalmist. The prophets, uh, it's just saturated uh, through the prophets. I've given you a few texts there to use. Uh, the consistent theme of the Old Testament is that God is opposed to, angry with, and does and will punish all, whether Jew or Gentile, uh, of those who rebel against him and his will and live in opposition to him. But that's just the Old Testament, right? I mean, God's the cranky God in the Old Testament, and he's the nice God in the New Testament. Is that right? <laughs> so that that is a perception, um, certainly not in the church, in, in a good church, and certainly hopefully not in your, in your church. Um, we find the wrath of God in the New Testament as well. Um, we find, um, oh, try, try this verse. See if, you know, God is not an angry God. Uh, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. See, God is so loving. 20 verses later, He who believes in the Son has life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So right in the very same context, same message, same conversation, you've got God talking, yes, Christ talking, yes, about the love of God, and yes, the wrath of God as well. Um, John the Baptist preached about the wrath of God, Matthew 3, uh, 7, 12. The writer of Hebrews uh, talks about the wrath of God as well uh, frequently. Paul writes regularly about the wrath of God. Um, Colossians 3, uh, 5 and 6, so helpful. Um, Paul talks about it often in the book of Romans. Romans is just saturated with the talk about the wrath of God. In fact, there's an entire book of the Bible that addresses primarily one theme. It's God's wrath. uh, And that's the book of Revelation. And we find that over and over and over. Um, The wrath of God is both an Old Testament and a New Testament concept. In fact, the English phrase, the wrath of God, or the anger of God appears 12 times in the New Testament. You want to hazard a guess how many times in the Old Testament? This is the part where you have to talk. Glenn, how many times does the phrase the wrath of God appear in the Old Testament? Thousand. One. One time. So there's this concept that God is, you know, God's the wrathful God. That's the Old Testament God. And the New Testament God is different. Um, No, he's consistent all the way through from Genesis to Revelation. But what's interesting is that there is a a greater weightiness in the New Testament on his wrath than even in the Old Testament, at least by that particular title. 
God is justly angry against sin and he is resolute in punishing it. Okay, so the question also asks to give some implications for life and counseling. This is the part where you talk. What are some implications about the wrath of God for counseling? If you're an unbeliever, you're under wrath. And you don't want to... You're a sinner who's unrepentant and you're going to hell. I mean, that's true. But there are gracious ways to say that and to warn them if you persist in going down this road. Uh, this, This is where you're headed. Absolutely. What else? I'm sorry? Apart from Christ, God is your enemy and He will destroy you. Yeah. Melissa. I'm sorry? We have a sin problem. Yeah. And that's universal for all of us. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Romans 12. I cannot tell you. There are a few pages in my Bible, at least as I think about the counseling room, that are particularly well creased. Ephesians 4, James 1, James 4, and Romans 12. I am regularly in Romans 12. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. Right? So I can trust Him. I don't need to take vengeance. He will do it. I can trust Him. And you will you will find yourself in that passage over and over and over. God's wrathful. He'll take care of it. You don't need to. Um, so helpful. Uh, unbelievers will face God's wrath if they do not repent. Because God is wrathful, no one ever needs to take vengeance for sins committed against Him. The believer in Christ is free from God's wrath and we don't need to fear it. There is therefore now a little but not very much condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Several years ago when I was preaching through Romans, I finished that message on Romans 5.1 and I, in between services, we had two services at the time, <clears throat> I was talking to a dear brother and he came up to me and he hugged me and he said, do you mean that all of my sin, God is no longer angry about it against me? I said, that's exactly what I mean. There's no condemnation. He is no longer against you because you're in Christ. And this particular brother, I didn't know all the details at the time. He had a horrific marital experience or experiences with multiple marriages and multiple sordid sin. And, And he needs to hear that's been washed, it's been cleansed. God's not angry. Uh, you're his beloved son, even as Christ is. Now, when do I go to, Lee? Does this go to like 3? 2.30? Okay. Uh, mercy of God. Definition. Whoops. Mercy is God's kindness to unbelievers by which he withholds the judgment that they deserve. There are a number of words that are used roughly synonymously. You will hear a lot of people um, make parallel or synonymous the terms mercy and grace. And I hold a distinction between them uh, as well as God's compassion. And I articulate it this way. That God's compassion is what compels him to have pity on those who are estranged from him through sin. So he looks at us and he takes pity on us. And he says... Uh, I am moved towards Terry because of the pitiable condition in which he has placed himself through his sin. 
So he is drawn to us because of the pity he takes on us. Then in mercy, he withholds the judgment that we are due. So my sin, any sin before Christ, he could have said that deserves my wrath immediately and he could have taken me out. But his mercy withheld that. And he said, I'm going to give him time to repent and see what he does. And then in grace, he grants his salvation and imputes his righteousness to the undeserving sinner. So compassion, he's moved towards us. Mercy, he withholds wrath. Grace, he grants kindness towards us and salvation. Not everybody sees it. I think, in fact, Heath Lambert kind of lumps grace and mercy together in his book. Um, I have just found it over the years to, uh, that that's helpful to think about those terms in that way. Some key passages you'll want to consider. Exodus twenty-five seventeen. The fundamental way that God relates to sinners in Israel is through His mercy seat. So in, in the mercy seat, He's not yet granting salvation because Christ hasn't come yet. But the mercy seat is withholding the wrath. He, the, the blood of the goat is put on that mercy seat and He says, for another year, I'm going to withhold my wrath. And then the next year on the Day of Atonement, they come and put the blood on the mercy seat again. And he says, I'm going to withhold my wrath. I'm going to withhold my wrath. And then Christ comes and he says, I'm granting forgiveness and I'm granting cleansing. Now, all those in the Old Testament who were covered by the mercy seat, they were also saved in anticipation of what Christ did when he came. Okay, so I I saw where you were going. So. There was salvation in the Old Testament, obviously. And they were saved, Romans 4, by grace through faith. They were anticipating the coming of Christ. Christ hadn't come yet. So, But the point is, the mercy seat is the withholding of wrath. And anticipating the grace that will come. Exodus 33, uh, 19. God's mercy is an expression of His inexplicable love. Deuteronomy 13, 17. God desires to be merciful to his people, but if, he, if they engage in sinful idolatry, he will not remain merciful. So there is an end to his mercy. So he says, I'm going to withhold, I'm going to withhold, I'm going to withhold, I'm going to withhold, and at some point he says, I'm done. And now it's time for justice to be enacted. Psalm 103, God's mercy is infinite in duration. Whoops, there we go. Uh, a common way for unbelievers to appeal to Christ was for his mercy. So you think about Christ when he was on earth, uh, the, the blind men, uh, um, be uh, uh, son of uh, was a son of David, uh, be merciful to me, right? Um, the the uh, tax collector in the temple, God be merciful to me, the sinner. Uh, the rich man in Lazarus, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Um, so people appealed to Christ for mercy. Would you, would you withhold your wrath? Romans 9, 23 and 24. Oh, this is a good one. Uh, Romans 9, 23 and 24. <clears throat> Start in verse 22. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, so God has an ability to demonstrate his wrath and, and, and demonstrate the magnificence of his infinite power by destroying sinners, right? What if, his, what if he, though willing to do that, endured with much patience 
vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. What if God said, I could take that one out in justice, but I will withhold doing that even though they've been prepared for destruction, right? I, I'm, I'm withholding, I'm waiting. And he did so, verse 23, to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. So he has withheld justice to make known to us the glory that we have received when we have received it from him. So his wrath becomes, as it were, the black velvet behind the diamond of his gospel and saving grace. So his wrath becomes a means by which he is glorified because he has saved us from that. And in that we see the magnificence of his grace and mercy. Um, really, really glorious passage. First uh, Timothy 1.16, when God extends mercy, we understand something of his patience towards us. Okay, let's think again. This is where you talk. Implications for life and counseling. What good is the mercy of God in counseling? Gives them hope. How? Yeah. Okay, good. Melissa? Uh, oh, that's good. Did you all hear that? It makes us compassionate towards those who are enslaved in sin. Um they were, they are where we were and we've received grace and it makes us compassionate for them to receive grace as well. That's really good. Um, counselees who come for counseling with burdens of sin need to hear the message that God delights to extend mercy to them. He's not hesitant to extend mercy. He loves to extend mercy. Uh, and we need to see them not as those who are, I mean, they, they are wicked in their sin in, that, in, in one sense, but we need, to, we need to have just this pity on them. They're trapped. And we've got, we've got the, the knowledge of how to help them out of the trap. And the way out is through the mercy of God. Uh, God loves to patiently extend mercy towards struggling sinners. Um. Years ago, I was in a counseling case with someone. It was it was it was a mess. It was not anybody in our church. It was someone from the community outside our church. I had somebody from that person's church sitting in with me, and it was a train wreck. <clears throat> and finally, after about the twentieth session, I dismissed the couple, and the couple that was working with them stayed. And I was sitting at my desk, and he came up to me, and he leaned on my desk, and he got in my face, and he said, how long are you going to work with these people? I said, well, they keep coming back. I just can't cut them off. Well, I can. I'm done. He said, they're, they're not changing. And there, there is a place where you say, you're not changing, you're not growing, you're not applying, you're not, using, you're not doing the homework, etc., etc. And I did eventually come to that place with that couple as well. But it's, there's this exasperation at times. You just, you just get weary from it. And we need to hear that God is astoundingly patient with people. And so, um, so 
abundant in His mercy towards them. He loves to do that. And because believers have received much mercy from God, they must extend that kind of same mercy toward others as well. We've already talked about that. Okay, the holiness of God. Give me a definition without looking at your notes. The holiness of God is? His perfection, His separateness, His uniqueness, His not only lack of inclination towards sin, not only His inability not to sin, but the presence of full perfection. So typically, very often when we talk about um, holiness, we think, well, not sinful. That's true, but it's more than that. It's the absence of sin and it is the presence of everything that is righteous, which makes him set apart, distinct, uh, free from, set apart from sin and devoted towards seeking his own honor. So we can substitute the word glory for honor and sneak you in under there as well. Yeah, yeah. Sacred would be a, 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 a synonym with holy. They're, they're essentially the same word. Um, God's holiness cannot and does not tolerate sin. Um, in His holiness, He has a just anger and hatred of sin. He is not apathetic towards sin. My favorite commentator, D. Edmund Hebert, in his commentary on James, says this, God is unsusceptible to evil. Evil never has any appeal for him. It is repugnant and abhorrent to him. The fact that God is untemptable of evil is the foundation for the Christian belief in a moral universe. Um, Think about key passages. I'll look in your notes. Key passage. Where do you go to to talk about the holiness of God? Isaiah 6, right? It's the only place in Scripture where an attribute of God is, is mentioned in triplicate. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. How holy must God be for those angels that Isaiah saw uh, when he was alive in that vision? And all they do is they go around the throne. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And you look at the book of Revelation, Revelation 4 and 5, and in eternity, thousands of years later, those same angels saying the same thing, and they're not weary of it. Um, They are just enraptured uh, with the holiness of God. He is infinite in His holiness, And that holiness stands unique and distinguishing among all of his attributes. Be careful here. A lot of people will say that holiness is the greatest of God's attributes, or they do say it is the attribute that holds them all together. And I know what they're saying, except in actuality that denies the simplicity of God. And it makes all the other attributes subservient to that. And that is not true. All of the attributes are always functioning fully at every level. And so I know what's trying to be said, but we want to we say 
everything is fully functional. There's not one that supersedes the other. It's others. And that gives that inclination that that is greater than the others. Glenn? Yeah, well, if God ceases to be God in any aspect of his nature, then he is not God. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yes, key passage, Isaiah chapter 6. Leviticus 44 and 45. He appeals to the obedience of the Israelites on the basis of his holiness and the fact that he is the Lord. I think 19 times in that chapter he says, I'm the Lord your God. In other words, you do what I tell you because I'm the Lord, I'm the master, I'm Yahweh, and you are subservient to me, so you should be holy. And then Peter takes that same passage in 1 Peter 1 and applies it to the believer because he says God is holy, the Christian, the little Christ, which is what the word Christian means, the little, Christian, the little Christ should similarly pursue holiness. So God is holy, and because we are connected to him through Christ, we should likewise pursue holiness. And because of God's holiness and the imputed righteousness of Christ, the believer is able to be holy. All right? So the holiness of God is one of those that we would call a communicable attribute. In other words, there is something about that attribute of God that can be communicated to us, that we are like God, not fully, not perfectly, uh, but there is something about that attribute of God that we can know and experience. Other attributes of God, that's not true. They're incommunicable. So like the self-existence of God, there's nothing about me that's self-existent. I don't sustain myself. Um... I am dependent in the mornings on coffee, in the afternoon on Diet Coke, and at night on sleep, right? I, I am, I'm always dependent on something. And I don't sustain myself. God does. He's always sustained himself. He is self-existent. He has always existed. He's never needed to be created. All of us have been created. Nobody started on their own. So there's nothing about his self-existence that, that, tra- that, that connects to us. But his holiness, there is. So that we look at other believers and say, that's what Christ looks like. I see Christ in you. Haven't you told people that? I see Christ in you. Um, and that's, that's the holiness of God being uh, realized. Uh, Habakkuk 1, 13, God cannot tolerate sin or evil in any way. While God's holiness is communicable, it is also true that it is transcendent. That is, he is above all creatures in holiness. So he is infinitely beyond us in holiness. Uh, his holiness is ethical in that he is separate from anything sinful. And it is theological in that it points to his glory. It exalts him. It holds him up. I love this from Tozer. He says, We cannot grasp the true meaning of divine holiness by thinking of someone or something very pure and raising the concept of the highest degree that we are capable of. God's holiness is not simply the best we know, infinitely bettered. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable, and the natural man is blind to it. He may fear God's power and admire his wisdom, but his holiness he cannot even imagine. Um, So that's the transcendence of God's holiness. Implications. 
How's the holiness of God going to help you in counseling? Yeah, you can call people to say, this is the standard. Yeah, but that's God's standard and God's infinitely holy and I can't be that. How do you respond to that? He's given us everything that we need for for life and godliness. We might say that in a more simplistic way. He will never call us to do something he hasn't equipped us to do. So if he has said, this is the standard of holiness, it means that by the Spirit of God and the Word of God, that's attainable. I can, under his power and authority, do what he's called me to do. He hasn't said, here's the standard, ha ha, you can't get there. That's not the nature of God. He's not malicious. He's not uh, facetious, sarcastic. Um, He delights for us to be holy and He's given us what we need in order to be holy. What else, Glenn? I'm sorry? Yes. So we have been... We have imputed righteousness. So we are declared holy, though we're not yet there. Right? So... When we're calling people a holiness, we're saying um, you're, you're already being considered this way. You need to be working towards that in actuality. Okay. Another implication. Is that the works for salvation that Paul is talking about? Are you saying you need to be working towards work there? No, it's, um, it's works from salvation. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it is God who is at work within you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So you work, and as you work, understand it's God who is enabling you to do that. So it's work that flows out of your salvation, not that works, not that flows towards your salvation or for your salvation, out of salvation. Okay, so a couple of things I came up with. The counselee's primary motive is to learn to glorify God by growing in sanctification and holiness. Um, it's most dramatic when I'm doing marital counseling, but I'll do this with um, with singles as well. When they come to me and they dump their problem, I say, well, um, that's really helpful to know. Uh, I just want you to know, you know, that the marital conflict that you're experiencing, it's not my goal to fix that. And they just look at me. We just spent an hour and a half dumping our problem. <laughs> and now you tell us that that's not your... You could have saved us an hour and a half. What's my goal? My goal to help is to help you, brother, walk with Christ, to be obedient to Him, to be a godly husband, to shepherd, to, to um, love your wife like Christ loves the church. My goal, sister, is to help you walk with Christ, to submit to Christ, and out of your submission to Christ, submit to your husband. My goal is not to fix the marriage. My, help, my goal is to help you glorify Christ and you glorify Christ. And what happens... When they both do that. They're, here's Christ. Here's where they are. And they're both moving towards Christ. And they're moving together. Now sometimes. It happens that one moves to Christ. And the other one doesn't. You ever seen that? Our churches are filled with those kinds of relationships. If my goal is to fix the marriage. And the one doesn't walk. Then I've failed. And I've not given her any hope. 
But if she walks with Christ, then that's her goal. How can I walk with Christ? How can I exemplify Christ? How can I be holy before Christ? And that's my goal. Then whether he does or not, she's going to be honoring to Christ and she will be satisfied. And so we want to keep primary goals as primary goals and secondary goals as secondary goals, right? Now, obviously, in the process, if I'm trying to help my brother walk with Christ in his marriage... We're going to be talking about marital issues, but the primary goal is not fixing the marriage. The primary goal is you walk with Christ. Um, I've got a great story, but we don't have time. Um, I said that to one couple one time. They came. They had so many issues. They hadn't had marital sex in five years. They were in their early 40s. They'd been married 20 years. Over half their marriage, they'd been celibate. And he was ticked off. And so I talked to them, they, and they had all kinds of other attendant issues, surprisingly. And so I gave that little speech, and I thought, as they walked out of the room, I thought, I wonder if I'll ever see them again. And they walked back in the next week. And he took the chair and he scooted it up. Right, I have people that come close to my desk sometimes. He scooted right up on my desk. He was sitting. He put his hands on the desk and he leaned across the desk and he said, when we came last week, I knew that that's what you were going to tell us. And I thought, what, whoa. <laughs> and he came just to punch my lights out. And then he said, and you're absolutely right. I'm the problem. I'm ready to work. Okay. Let's work. It was astounding how quickly they grew. And within about 12 weeks, they graduated. She called me a couple years later and she said, Hey, we've moved to Houston. Just wanted to let you know how things are going. Things are going great. You know, we're still walking with Christ. And God's really done a remarkable work in our marriage. In fact, the church is videoing us and our testimony as an example of what Christ can do. And we rejoiced together. I prayed with her. Thank God. She called me again. I don't remember. Maybe two months later. It was Friday. I was working on my sermon. I have my phone off and I'm inaccessible on Friday. Secretary knocked on the door and she said, hey, so-and-so is on the phone. She really needs to talk to you. She sounds distressed. So, okay, put her through. So I picked up the phone and she was just weeping. And she said, my husband came home last night. And uh, he was a very large man. He was about 300 pounds, uh, significantly overweight. And he'd had, we came to find out other issues that related to that. She said, we got into bed about 10 o'clock and he was having trouble breathing. I called 911, but by the time they got here, he was in glory. And she said, I just want you to know the last two years were the best years of our lives. So that all flowed out of you live for the glory of God. You live to honor Him and work for His holiness. And uh, she has since remarried, and uh, we still keep in touch through Facebook, and every six months or year we'll exchange messages, and she's still doing well and, and affirms repeatedly um, God's goodness to them in those days. So um, keep that as a priority, the holiness of God. It's not something out there. Um, that, that's your goal is to help your counselees. All right, we've got to move quickly. <clears throat> the omnipotence of God definition God can do anything that he wills to do and anything that is in harmony with his perfections so 
there are things that God cannot do. He cannot do things that are nonsensical, like he can't make a rock that's big enough that he can't lift it. I mean, that's a nonsensical thing, right? Um, and he cannot sin. He cannot do anything outside of the divine decree of the triunity of God, right? So the, 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 the Godhead is always within harmony with each other. And they always have to do things that are in line with their perfections. Um, other things that he cannot do, he cannot lie, he cannot be unfaithful to himself, he cannot sin. But that being said, Pink in his book, Attributes of God, nothing is too hard for him. If God were stinted in might and had a limit to his strength, we might despair. But seeing that he is clothed with omnipotence, no prayer is too hard for him to answer, no need too great for him to supply, no passion too strong for him to subdue, no temptation too powerful for him to deliver from, no misery too deep for him to relieve. The Lord is the strength of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? Psalm 27. Key passages, you've got three characteristics, three omnis here, the omnipresence, omnipotence, um, and omniscience of God, Psalm 139 addresses all of those. Um, so you can use Psalm 139 very well for all three of these final attributes of God. Uh, Psalm 139, 13 to 19, God's powerful in creation of mankind and each individual man. Um, Matthew 19, because of his power, all things are possible to God. Nothing can exhaust his limitless power. It's not like God's in heaven saying, wow, that was a tough day. Is infinite in power. Nothing strains him. In fact, I love Psalm 8, right? It talks about creation. And it says it's the work of his fingers. I think about it as a, as a child in a sandbox, right? Just playing with stuff with his fingers. And God went, and the universe is there. And it took that much energy. Nothing. It's no strain. Uh, it, didn't, it didn't tax him to any kind of limit. And nothing does. Uh, Ephesians 3.20, God's power supersedes our ability to ask or even conceive of requests. There's nothing that you can even conceive of that would be beyond the power of God. Um, Exodus 14, God's not bound by the constraints of natural law. A whole lot of other, uh, that's the uh, crossing of the Red Sea, and we find that all over in Scripture as well. Any kind of miracle, we find those kinds of things as demonstrations of God's power. Uh, Daniel 4, our friend Nebuchadnezzar, um, who affirms that no one can resist the power or authority of God, and he had a seven-year lesson in that, didn't he? Acts chapter 4, God is powerful over the affairs of the nations. Uh, Revelation 20, uh, verse 2, God is powerful over Satan. He cannot be thwarted by Satan, and Satan's end is secure. He will be bound... He will be cast into the lake of fire. That is a guarantee. There is no question. It's finished. It's done. We're just waiting for the culmination. So we don't need to despair and go, Oh, the world. Yeah, I know. The world is crazy. But it's a done deal. God's going to take care of it. We can rest. God, God is powerful to save those whom He wills to be saved. We don't have time to walk through that. But is that in your notes? All those references? Okay, so you can read that. Is that in your notes? Just the verses, okay.
you can read, um, if you have access to MacArthur's commentary on John 6, it's stellar, really, really helpful on that particular passage. Um, the power of God is such, and, and we see this in John 6, that he can make the rebellious sinner yearn for him. And he can keep the rebellious sinner in Christ for all of eternity. Isn't that a comfort to you? Um, I love First Peter 1. Uh, that he preserves us and keeps us in him. Ephesians 5, God is powerful to produce sanctification in those whom he saves. Implications. Quickly, implications for God's omnipotence. Yeah, and the way I say it is, I don't say that, I, I know what you're doing, but the counselee's in front of me and I say, nothing's impossible for God. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, no. Your husband is not stronger than God. He is powerful over your husband. He is powerful over your son and your son's drug addiction. And I just start walking through their life and all the things that they're struggling with. And I said, that does not trump God's power. God's not in heaven going, well, I thought I was powerful and then this came up. And I just don't know what I'm going to do. It is of no strain to God's omnipotence. That's massive, brothers and sisters. Um, our power and our strength is, uh, is derived from the power of God as well, right? So God is infinite. We're in Christ. We have access to his power and authority. Not infinitely so, but he empowers us out of his power. So we have ability through him and from him. There is nothing that has happened to any individual counselor or counselee that is beyond the scope of God's power. It didn't happen accidentally. And just a side note here. Um, in some of my supervisions, what I've found repeatedly, and it's been my own situation as well, sometimes you're going to be counseling and you've got a counseling appointment uh, that, that afternoon and something blows up in your home and your life that day. And there, there is something that provokes deep heartache deep trouble, a deep weight, a wayward child, a wayward parent, a broken relationship. And you're walking into that counseling room and you've got someone that's dependent on you and you're broken and you're weeping. And I want you to know that God's power is sufficient for you in that. He's adequate. You can lean on him and he'll be enough. And even out of your brokenness and your weakness, he puts you there at times so that you recognize it's not you. It's him. It's not your wisdom. It's not your word. It's his word. And he can take you in your brokenness and he can use you when you are weak and he will be strong. That almost sounds biblical, doesn't it? Second Corinthians 12. God said no to Paul. Because if he said yes, then it would look like Paul was doing it. And he had to show Paul, it's not you, it's me. And it's that way for all of us. God has ability to do everything we need in every circumstance. That'll be helpful for you and for your counselees. Omniscience of God. Um, God has complete knowledge of everything. Whatever omniscience is, Chafer says, 
only omniscience can know in the absolute cognition of it. In other words, we don't even know what omniscience is because we don't have enough knowledge to know what we need to know to know what omniscience is. Nevertheless, some portions of this marvelous divine reality may be comprehended and what cannot be known may be received by faith in God's word. Some key passages again, uh, Psalm 139, Psalm 90, God is aware of everything. He never has to reason or deliberate anything. He always has all knowledge. In other words, God knows everything intuitively. Which means he never needs to learn to do something. I mean, you need to learn to do everything, right? Everything you know is learned. God never has learned everything. It always is there, present with him. Always has been, always will be. God knows all of the variables, Matthew 11, concerning things that have not occurred. Or that have, a, yeah, he knows all the variables of all things that have not occurred or that have occurred. So anything that occurs, there have been variables, and he knows. So woe to you, Chorazin and Bethsaida, if Sodom and Gomorrah had had what you had had in Revelation, they would have repented. God knows what would have happened if they had had the light of the gospel of Christ and how they would have come to repentance. Uh, Daniel 2, God knows all future events. Lots of prophecy in the Old Testament that we can point to for that. Uh, Matthew 11, God knows all things that are possible. Again, Job 37, he is the one that is perfect in knowledge. He is intuitive in his, in his knowledge. He always knows he cannot learn. Implications for life and counseling. Let me just run through these. Uh, every person is always at the forefront of God's knowledge. Because God is infinite in knowledge, all things on this earth are finite. God is never overwhelmed in his mental duties. Uh, Spurgeon has a quote, um, and I don't, ah, there it is. Spurgeon says this, God sees you as much as if there were nobody else in the world for him to look at. If I had as many people as there are in this room to look at, my attention, of course, must be divided. But the infinite mind of God is able to grasp a million objects at once and yet to focus as much on one as there was nothing else but that one. So he is aware of everything and yet focused on everything particularly as if nothing else is there. Um, how does that work? I don't have a clue. But that's, that's the reality. Uh, let me see if I've got the source. Uh, it's C.H. Spurgeon. I'm not sure where it's from. I didn't put that in my notes. I'm sorry. There's a, it may be, there's a, a several compilations that Wearsby did of sermons on attributes of God. It may be from that, that, that that's a guess. Um, the counselor will have limitations in his ability. God is never limited. There will be times you're sitting in that room going, I don't know. Uh, God never feels that way. God knows each person's circumstance and exactly what each person needs in that situation. Uh, omnipresence of God. God is everywhere present and everything is immediately in his presence. God is not in everything. That's pantheism. But he is everywhere. There is no place where he is not. Um, Strong says in his theology, God in the totality of his essence without diffusion or expansion, multiplication or division penetrates and fills the universe in all its parts. Psalm 139. Um, 
God is not only everywhere, but there is no escaping God's presence. There's no place that you can go from which you can run from Him. Acts 17 tells us that God does not have size and He does not have spatial limitations. Uh, Grudem is really helpful here. Um, We should guard against thinking that God extends infinitely far in all directions so that He Himself exists in a sort of infinite, unending space. Nor should we think that God is somehow a bigger space or a bigger area surrounding the space of the universe as we know it. All of these ideas continue to think about God's being in spatial terms as if He was simply an extremely large being. Instead, we should try to avoid thinking of God in terms of size or spatial dimensions. God is a being who exists without size or dimensions in space. In fact... Before God created the universe, there was no matter or material, so there was no space either, yet God existed. Where was He? He was not in a place that we would call where, for there was no where or space, but God still was. This fact makes us to realize that God relates to space in a far different way than we do, or than any other created thing does. He exists as a kind of being that is far different and far greater than we can imagine. Um, Matthew 28, Christ promised to be with His disciples into eternity, and that same promise is given to every believer. Revelation 14, where is Christ in eternity? Where's Christ? On his throne, right hand of the Father. So here's something, here's something mind-bending. Is Jesus Christ still the God-man? Okay, so we just heard this last week. Um, Zechariah 14. He comes from heaven and his feet touch the Mount of Olives. That's body. So he still has his body in heaven. And yet, He hasn't ceased to be God, so while in bodily form He's localized, yet as the second person of the Trinity, He's he's infinite in where He is, right? He's not limited by space. He is in heaven at the right hand of the Father. Where else is He? Revelation 14, He is in hell, pouring out His wrath on all of eternity on those who are unbelievers. So, so in that sense, God's also in hell as the Lord of hell, controlling what goes on in hell. Hell is not Satan's dominion, it's Christ's dominion, by which he pours out his wrath unrelentingly, and it's one of the places where he, in his omnipresence, exists. Revelation 14.10 Implications for life and counseling. There is an encouragement to the, uh, to the believer. You're never alone. You're never alone. There is a warning to the unbeliever. You cannot escape God's presence. That's also a warning to the believer, isn't it? <laughs> you can't escape God's presence. He's watching. He's aware. Whatever show you're watching, whatever website you're surfing, He's watching it with you. God's presence is as real as the presence of every other human being. We are never alone. Says Packer, in knowing God, living becomes 
an awesome business when you realize that you spend every moment of your life in the sight and company of an omniscient, omnipotent creator. All right. Thank you for your time. I finished early on the other one. I finished late. We're balanced and even.